Hey everybody, this is the Wild Ass Podcast and I am your host, Wild Ass Craig. This is episode 9 and in this episode I get to introduce all of you to Bob Beekman. Bob is an industry friend that I've known for a number of years and in this episode we will get to know a little bit more about him. He graduated high school in Long Island, New York and from there went to cooking school. Around the age of 22, Bob, with a few years of experience as a pastry chef, brought his skills to Boca Raton, Florida. Although he was introduced to riding as a kid on a buddy's bike, he never really got into riding until around the age of 19. He became a part-time road racer for a while before beginning his career in power sports as a parts guy at Margaret Motorcycle World near Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It was there where he worked his way through the dealership, stepping up to be parts manager, and then working his way all the way up to becoming the general manager. In 2001, Bob began his current role as a sales consultant with Tucker Rocky in Tennessee. With that brief history, let me introduce all of you to Bob Beekman. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. This is actually kind of cool. I haven't had a rep on my show yet, and I was looking forward to this. I think this will be cool. Wow, that's awesome. That's, <laughs> You're the uh, first rep yeah. on the Wild Ass Podcast. So we the first for everything, I reckon. That's, well, there's got to be, doesn't there? Yes. <laughs> so we've known each other for a long time. I was trying to think of this before the call, and I don't remember. Where was I employed when we first met? Was it Scott or was it Airhawk? Airhawk. It was in, actually, and this will probably ring your bell. Will ring a bell. We were in St. Louis, I believe, is when we first met. In um, St. Louis. Known you a little bit before from the shows, but we went to St. Louis and we had uh, an event with Tim Dodd where we were in that really cool hotel that's attached to um, a Triumph dealership or a Triumph dealership's right next door to it. And then the restaurant has a little bit of a, a hall of some sort that has, oh, what do you call it? A little museum, motorcycle museum in it. St. Louis, Missouri, and you did a small presentation. We had rep presentations, um, and you were one of the vendors to come in and, and talk. Okay. Uh, so I wasn't that impressionable, obviously, at that point. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember the but event. I remember you. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the event because we, you know, we've done so many of those things. And when you said with Tim Dodd, I was thinking the backcountry ride. Were we together on that too? I don't know. I don't recall. I don't recall you being at one. Although, and I've only done two or three of those awesome rides, but okay. I don't. I don't recall you being at one. But it was at in St. Louis. I definitely remember that. Man, I remember. <laughs> it was pretty funny. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. Other stuff that happened there, but yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe and stuff we don't want to talk about. Back, <laughs> and you. <laughs> and you've done those backcountry rides, which are awesome. Yeah, those were so much you, fun. I, I missed those. I wish they still did those. You and me both. I tell you one of the favorite things I ever remember from that, you know, and you probably remember Rick Dorfmeyer, his Absolutely. speeches before them. And my favorite one is that he says, Hey, this is not a race. You cannot win, but you can lose. So to keep everybody in check. And then I love the part where he says, Hey, we don't have any rules out here, but if you do do something stupid and we have to make a rule, we're gonna name it after you. <laughs> I remember so, those. And I, I took that <laughs> part of his speeches and brought him to the racetrack when I had that and it worked out pretty oh, well yeah you're exactly right because yeah you can't you can't win on the street all you can do is lose and you ride your own ride and you don't need to be a hero right I need to get him on here if those of oh, you God. for for people that don't know Rick Dorfmeyer he is one of the favorite people that I've ever traveled with because he's old school everybody knows him I mean what a cool guy I need to get him on here I'm writing his name down. 
talk about a charismatic person as well. Um, there's good reason why they call him world famous. And it's funny. Everybody knows him. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Let's talk about him when I get him on the show. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> for this show, you're married, right? Yes. Married. Uh, Twenty, As my wife would say, 26 long years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 26 of the happiest goddamn years of your life. <laughs> yes. No, they really... They really are. It's like when I talk to people about it, and it and it's kind of funny because I don't mind hanging out with her, doing stuff. It's just a non-issue, you know. If I wanted to go hang out with my buddies at a, a strip club, I can go. I don't have to. It's no big hassle. It's no nothing. Um, I don't do it very often, almost almost never. But uh, I was gonna say, yeah, that's so, that's okay though. Yeah, those kind of, but that's the kind of thing that's like a a non-issue. And so it's you know, I like hanging out with her. I like my family. My son and my daughter, um, I ride now more with my son. I wish I did more stuff with my daughter, but uh, we all have a really good, fun, happy, we're all a bunch of goofballs, I guess we could say. Oh, that's cool. It always helps when the kids yeah. are raised with goofballs that they become goofballs as well. Oh, yeah. It's, it's you know, it's awesome. Yeah, that's great. So, kids, you got two kids. You got Colin and Samantha, or Sam, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, she is Sam. Since she doesn't ride, what's her thing? What's she into? She she does know how to ride, and she has her motorcycle license, which is cool. Everybody in my family does, and they all got their endorsements and did the courses. But she is basically right now just a college student working in a restaurant and uh, server at a restaurant, doing a great job at it, taking online college right now, and that's one of the reasons why I'm on a hiatus from college. And then she's outdoors, hiking, boyfriend, dogs, all that kind of stuff. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. Uh, she's got her endorsement. That's very cool as well. So, did she ride a little bit, or and just doesn't now? Does she still have a motorcycle? Did she have a motorcycle? What's the deal there? No, she she lost somewhat of an interest of it when she got she got her dri- motorcycle license, got her driver's license, got her motorcycle license a little bit after that, and then because she was riding in her car and hanging out with her friends, she kind of lost interest in a motorcycle. So. Which is okay. Yeah, you know, I don't need fine. her to ride or anything. Yep. Um, but she did. We had a little V125. And my uh, ended up that my son rode it more than anybody and put 3,000 miles on it in about a year. And, uh, a lot of fun, though. And he, don't ride no more. he still rides, you said? You get to ride with him? So what's what's the – explain this, B125. What is that? A uh, little Grom. Well, you know what a Grom oh, is, Oh, yes. Right? Yep. On yep. the Grom. Yep. Well, the Z125 is a Z. It's a it's the same thing made by California. Okay, I misheard basically. you. I thought you said B is in boy. I didn't understand what that was. No. I know okay. it's C one. I'm sorry. Okay. Yep. Cool. So yeah. that's what he wrote. What's his background? You know, he's done a lot of everything. He's done, um, and both of my kids have. So they've experienced motorcycles at young ages. Got in and out of it. He had a throttle stuck at one point on a little Cobra. A little Cobra 50, I guess. Mm-hmm. But those things scream. Mm-hmm. Had a throttle stuck, and it just spooked him. And it was pretty fast to get off. So I didn't worry about it too much. And I said, you know what? We'll go do something else. And we went and played ice hockey and lacrosse. And, you know, I guess that was the main part of it. Did a whole bunch of really high competitive travel hockey and lacrosse. And, um, and then he ended up, uh, you know, just getting out of school, going into college. Now he... Uh, he only went for a couple of years, dropped out. He's kind of got this, well, I, I didn't go as long as he did, but he, uh, yeah, so he dropped out and now he is in commercial 
HVAC work. So when oh. you're putting up a new building or doing a major renovation, his company does that with him. Good deal. So yeah, so he's a tradesman and he's doing a great job at it. Uh, loves his job. His boss loves him. It's it's pretty darn good. And so he's been able to save up and and get back on motorcycles other than riding all of my stuff. Buy his <laughs> own motorcycle now. <laughs> what's uh what's he riding? So. And this is interesting because when I first got into motorcycles, the first motorcycle I bought was a EX500, 87 EX500, okay. all white, a uh, little bit of red in it. And uh, less than a year later, I moved on into a 600 Ninja. And again, it was an 87 600 Ninja. And so just recently with him last October, he bought a... 650 Ninja, which is what you can consider the equivalent of an EX500. And then about six months later, here it comes. He ends up trading that in, and he's got himself a 636, the ZX6R. Sure. The equivalent to the 600. So I thought it was kind of cool and neat to him to come full circle all on his own, but it kind of was cool because it followed my path yeah, in the motorcycle. So yeah. Yeah, so now he he and we ride on occasion. Um, he rides probably more than I do right now because I have responsibilities. <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. But you get to ride together. Uh, yes, yeah, all through the mountains of East Tennessee, and it's it's really pretty fantastic. And it, and I tell him, you know, you go at your speed, I'll go at my speed. You know, intersection, crossroads, stuff like that. You wait for me, I'll wait for you. Whatever the case may be, and it's all good. And he rides within his head, and uh, we got a few hand signals that we that we know to make sure that we don't get too far away from each other or something stupid's happening, whatever the case may be. But yeah, so we get to do that, and that's pretty awesome. That's that sounds cool. We uh, I've I always want to ride with my kids every chance I can. Yeah. So you know, I have two. Renee has two. Currently, the the boy I call him, uh, my bonus boy, Renee's <laughs> son. He uh, he's got a bike, but. Evidently, I stop and turn off road too much, you know, or just make random turns. And he's a fairly new rider, rider, so it doesn't make him super comfortable. But he also doesn't want to lead, so riding together has been a little bit of a challenge. But maybe we'll get there eventually. I'm hoping to. So a little bit jealous you know, you of you in that department. Well, the more you get with him, and he rides, and you say you pull off the road. When you say you pull off the road, you pull off into a you know, like a fire road or something? No, like we'll be going down the road and then I'll see a road and go, hey, I wonder what goes down there. And I'll just like, I, you know, don't whip around in front of him, but I'll pull over, stop, he'll catch me. And then we'll whip a U-turn and head down a random road. <laughs> just, so, I think he'd rather just ride his own pace, do his own thing, which I'm perfectly cool with and I'd even love to follow, but we're not there yet. Okay. So, you you know, they got communication systems where you guys can talk to each other, right? I do. I do, and we've used them. <laughs> in oh, fact, okay. when we were uh, when he was learning to ride, that's what we did. We had um, the Cardos in both of our helmets, and I would be up front, just kind of pointing out things to look at, things to see. Did you notice this? Pay attention to that. Just potential hazards, you know, things you learn from riding good. all the time. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. So when you started riding, I wanted to go to talk about that. You you talked about riding your buddy's bike, and you didn't have one. So how how did that come about? And did your parents approve of this, or is that why you rode your buddy's bike? <laughs> did my parents approve? I never asked them. <laughs> so I, the, the, the really good part about, good and bad of where I grew up, right? I grew up on Long Island, and 
I was at the, uh, you know, middle, middle of Long Island. So we had a lot of, we had a little bit of green that you can go ride on, you know, and they, really there were no dirt roads or anything. You're riding through a couple of little fields here and there. And there really wasn't good motorcycle riding, unfortunately, because I'm 60 miles outside of New York City. So I got a really great life experience of the city, but not a great opportunity to go ride dirt bikes like a lot of my buddies grew up on farms or they go riding in the woods a lot. If we did that, you know, as we did it, my buddy had two XR80s and, and, you know, we'd go riding and it was only about a half a dozen times. And so I had to kind of teach myself how to use the clutch and shift gears. And so it was pretty, um, so I didn't ride a lot. It just wasn't very many places to go. So, but it wasn't until I went to college and I went to cooking school. So I'm going to Johnson Wales University and it's either on a long ride or I took a ferry across Long Island Sound over to Connecticut. And um, so I'd be sitting there reading all these magazines, reading magazines. I'm like, holy cow, these things are awesome. And cycle newses and catch racing on TV. And it was never my dad's bag of tricks or anything like that. So, you know, I kind of forged my own path. And then it was, it wasn't until I was 19. I, I dropped out of school because I was, not very, I went to Johnson Wales University. And because it's a university, it's not a school, it's not a uh, vocational type of school like Cordon Bleu or um, Culinary Institute of America, uh, where they have to have different standards. So I had to learn, oh gosh, what was it? Sanitation. And I had, to, I had to learn like real junk. I had to do some chemistry or biology or something. And it was, drove me crazy. So I could do the hands-on part, but I could not do, it was really difficult. I didn't like doing all the book work part of it. So I dropped out. And when I dropped out and my mom wasn't too happy about it, but then again, she wasn't, she, she, she didn't stop me. And I said, I'm going to take the rest of the money I got, which is just a little bit. And I'm going to buy a motorcycle. <laughs> and that was a little bit of, a, <laughs> and that was a little bit of a fight. But eventually she, you know, you know, Hey, that was the nice part about, being part of my family is you you learned how to pay stupid tax um it was an old school thing of you know you did something stupid you got hit i was i was never beaten and i was always hit for good reasons (laughs) (laughs) but uh but you know she's like here okay you want to do it you're gonna go do it do it on your own and there you go so uh so yeah so i bought my first 600 ninja i mean my first whatever but it ended up that it was my only means of transportation as well. Okay. Um, so in four, my first four years of owning motorcycles, and probably at least two or three of them, were in New York, and I rode 100,000 miles in four years. No kidding. That's yeah. a lot of riding, my, especially but, in a city. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it was outside the city a little bit, right? So I'm on Long Island, so, but there was still, you know, it's not like a dirt bike heaven. But... Yeah, so I'd ride everywhere I could. You hit the clover leaves as you could, but I had, but that was my only means of transportation. So I had to go to work. So I rode in the snow. Well, I rode in the snow if it was not, if the roads were not covered in snow. If they were, you know, snows, everybody clears off the roads and now it's just wet. Yeah. I rode in that. I wore skiing apparel. They didn't really have good motorcycle apparel back in the 80s. So yeah, so that and so that was my only means of transportation. Didn't have anything else. 
and uh, so yeah, so I rode a hundred thousand miles, and I beat the dog snot out of that six hundred ninja. I was your typical street geek, I guess you could call it. <laughs> so how long did you have your EX five hundred? Uh, six months or so. Okay, and then you went straight to the ninja, and you put almost a hundred thousand yeah. miles on that thing. No, I put over a hundred thousand. Speedometer was broke from part of it. No kidding. But um, yeah, I sold it with a hundred and ten thousand miles in 91 or two maybe 92 something like that with over 112,000 and like I said the thermometer cable was broke for part of that that's a lot of miles that's a lot of miles on that bike to just to be riding it that's crazy that's yeah that's cool what was your progression of bikes then what'd you go to from the ninja 600 uh well I raced a bunch of race bikes at that point so all my bikes from there were race bikes so I owned a, a couple of GSXRs destroyed one or two of them i rode a and then i had uh i raced somebody else's fcr 600 but i raced i owned a tz 125 a tz 250 i'm sorry and i road raced that for a little bit and then i had a rs 125 road racer uh and then i probably and then the next bike i got oh no well i got a couple of cbr 600s um and there were always bikes that i fell into and it's like what i tell people when they go out and look for motorcycles don't or cars or anything don't look so hard let it just come naturally to you look sure. for it but don't you don't have to jump into that first thing and i always found these really cherry uh, 600 uh 600 hurricane i had and then i got my one of my favorite bikes of all time a 92 bought it in 93 or 94 but a 92 zx11 all black black swing arm everything i and remember those bomb ah that was my favorite motorcycle. Those are cool too. Um, yeah. And then that was my last one, believe it or not, because ended up getting married, having kids, well, moving, well, having kids, moving, and then everything was about kids. So instead of me having a dirt bike, my kids had dirt bike or street bike or anything. And then I couldn't get stuff because, you know, we're activities with, again, hockey, lacrosse, whatever it may be. And it wasn't until, I guess, about 2015 or so, I got back into it as far as buying my own motorcycle again. And I bought another ZX-14 at this point. And then I bought the bike that I should have bought when I bought the ZX-14 is my GS that I have now, my uh, 1200 GS Adventure. Yep, I've and seen that it. is a bike for, man, almost anybody. It is awesome. I have enough fun on the road, off the road. Yeah bike I should have bought years ago so but yeah so that was my progression through motorcycles and then I had a couple that you know the Z I had for a little while and I had a CRF 250L a lot of fun too Colin rode that a lot yeah so they were uh they were, those were the couple you know I feel bad if a motorcycle sits in a garage and getting motor miles on it gotta sell it gotta get rid of it oh no don't say that <laughs> Renee listens oh. to this <laughs> I, man I just feel so bad for that motorcycle um, <laughs> I laugh because I have a couple really old ones in the in the garage. Uh, you know, two of them that I believe are the two that my brother and I had when we were very young. Um, I have the first KTM that came into my dealership. Still have that one in my shed, and then I got a couple Yamaha Zuma scooters. Which her and I ride those. Those are kind of the hood cruisers. We really like those. <laughs> <laughs> those are fun. You see, those are the exceptions I would make to the rule, right? If I could find a uh, an eighty-seven. Uh, limited GSXR 750. I'd let that sit in my garage. But you know, stuff like that is about maybe all. 
but other than that, they're just, you know, I feel bad for them. They're made to be written. I want them to be, I want people to write them. But those that you have are, that that's different. That's totally <laughs> okay. Different. Okay. We're good then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, uh, so when you were I'm riding, you when you were younger, what's that? I'm not telling you to sell your motorcycle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when you were younger and you were doing all those miles, you were doing 25,000 a year. What are you doing now? Now that you're an adult, now that you work in the industry, how many miles are you getting on that GS? Not enough. I do about 5,000 a year. And it's a common misconception. And I'll tell you two of them. One, how I, how I kind of almost got into motorcycles was me getting into, I mean, not getting into motorcycles, but getting into a, a, a motorcycle shop. So. I'll give you a really cool kind of interesting story that, that everybody, when they, when they hear it, they go, Oh shit. Oh, that's pretty damn cool. Okay. But, so I worked in, I was in living in Long Island and I was working at a restaurant at the time that served, served fine food to your house. Right. So we were, so I served everything from surf and turf to a hamburger or wings or whatever to your house. And it was called room service, really cool little restaurant. We were in a strip mall and we had no tables. It was just all takeout or delivery. So what happened was one morning I got a phone call at 10 o'clock in the morning. A guy calls me up. He says, Bob, don't bother coming to work today. The restaurant blew up. <laughs> blew up? What are, you, what are you talking about? And in this little strip mall was, you know, five or seven different bays. And right to the right of us was a pizza place that had gone out of business and somehow left gas on or there was a gas leak or something and there was an explosion no way so yeah and i'm like get out of here so i went down there and sure enough we had a walk-in that was right next to one of the walls that was moved you know probably about a foot six eight inches it was a huge walk-in so figure an eight by ten room easy just being pushed you know couple five seven ten inches something like that walls were you know kind of moved and round and so we couldn't work. So he says, you know, we're out of work for a little while until we either, you know, do some sort of renovations or, uh, you know, whatever. And evidently they ended up closing. But that was at 10 o'clock in the morning. I got down there at about 11. At 2 o'clock, I said, guys, I'm leaving. I'm going to Florida. And my brother had already moved down to South Florida, Boca Raton, Florida. And uh, so I went home, told my parents, I said, I'm leaving them out. At 8 o'clock that night, I was Packed up my motorcycle and got on my 600 Ninja, my road race leathers on, a couple bags, a bag strapped to the back of it, and I took off. So 10 o'clock at night, I'm going over the uh, Verrazano Bridge, and I just left, went to New York, went to Florida. So next night at about midnight or so, showed up at my brother's doorstep and banged on the door and said, hey, I'm here. <laughs> and he just took you in. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave, I called his wife and told him, told her. So she'd give him so somebody knocking on the door, you know, 11 o'clock at night, you know, what's happening. So, uh, but yeah, so I just jumped on my bike and, and left um, whatever I can pack with me. And, and I moved, we went to Florida, you know, got a, you know, ended up getting a room somewhere in a, you know, rented a room in a house or something to that effect. And I went and got a job, Royal Palm Country Club, Boca Raton, Florida. And then to, you know, and I was still riding my motorcycle. My local motorcycle shop was Margate Motorcycle World, a little mom and pop shop. And I was buying parts and accessories there. And one day they had a sign up, help wanted. I'm like, hell yeah. So I get into motorcycles and go back to road racing and everything. And, and, you know, this is real close to West Palm Beach, Florida to go 
to go road racing. I'm like, man, I can get back into it. And the, the short part of it is, is when you work in the motorcycle shops, you don't get off on weekends to go <laughs> and uh, go party and race and do stuff. So it was, uh, so I took, so I quit my $11 an hour job at, at the country club in 90, I guess in 90 or 90 and took a $5 an hour job. I think it's what it was, $5.75 an hour to push a broom in a, in a motorcycle shop as a parts guy. But yeah, to, to get back to the original thing of, you know, I got into it to go uh, to go road racing and didn't get to do as much as I wanted to. And it's the same thing as now. Is I've got my motorcycle. You think, oh, you're a rep. You probably ride all over the place. And no, I don't get to ride as often as I'd like to because I got to be at shops. I got to be in there uh, showing off samples. And I hate, hate riding on the interstate. It is the most boring thing I can do on a motorcycle. I think everybody and, would agree. I hope so. I see too many people riding it, but hey, it's a means to an end, right? And and if I take the back roads, it takes me too long to do and go to the shops. That's why I only do four or 5,000 miles a year. And I like hanging out with my wife where we are outdoors people. We go paddle. We live right down around the corner from a lake. So we go paddle boarding a lot. We hike. We live in the Great Smoky Mountains. I gotta hike, right? Sure. Um, so we do a lot of hiking, a lot of outdoor activities and so I don't ride as much as I want to, but I ride as much as I can. And about four or 5,000 miles a year is yeah. what it equates to. That's what I was curious. I know uh, I know you live in a very beautiful part of the country for riding. but uh, yeah. And it's crazy because I hear the same thing. You know, we all do. Probably get to ride all the time working in the industry. And uh, <laughs> we're sitting here every good day of riding. We're at an event. You know, on the weekends when my friends are riding, we're at an event. Same with you. If you get a weekend off... Do you really get a weekend off or do you have to go help at an open house or do you got to do something different where you're just, sure. you're missing out on the riding time, chasing the dollar? Sure. Yeah. Oh, you get to go to Daytona every year. You get to go to uh, Arizona Bike Week. Well, it's not the same thing. Right. I, I got <laughs> to put on 40 miles this year in Daytona and I was ecstatic because I've never ridden in Florida before. Ah, <laughs> oh, and you know, I hate to say Florida is not the best riding. Oh, I don't hate saying it at all. It's it's good riding if you don't mind going straight and never going over a hill. <laughs> it is beautiful though, right? You're riding up A1A, um, down up and down A1A is is pretty spectacular though. It's pretty yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't point. know. <laughs> We're busy um, working. Uh, well, well, that's what that's where you got to go ride. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, the plan is uh, eventually we'll get to head down. We'll get down there a little early and we'll get to ride. You know, maybe take the bike down. I'd like to do around the state. I'd like to go straight west, follow the coast south, all the way to the Keys, back up to Daytona, and then work the event. I don't think that would take too long. Well, you got to remember, it's about three hours, three and a half hours to Fort Lauderdale. Yep. Easy. And, but if you're taking the back roads or A1A, it's, it's a half a day. It's eight hours. It's, yeah. it's eight hours or so, believe it or not. Yeah, when I say don't take, so, it wouldn't take too long. I mean, just a couple of days, you could do it and be pretty comfortable and not okay. racing anywhere. Yeah. So tell me yep. more about this road race thing. I guess I I don't remember you being a road race guy. How long did you do it? Where did you race? Um, well, I started in New York, and I'll have to show you the pictures at one point. But I started in New York at, at Bridgehampton, and that was another thing. I just bootstrapped myself and you know bought a motorcycle, a used motorcycle off of somebody to go road racing. And so I did a couple races in what's called Bridgehampton, which is no longer there, and then. Uh, when I moved to Florida, I did most of my racing in uh, right at West Palm Beach, rode Daytona, rode the Race of Champions one or two years, 
And I was always that guy who needed that big bike to begin with. I always, that's why I was racing GSX-R750s. And I thought, man, that's the best thing. And then a buddy of mine, Marcello Del Giudice, turned me on to two-stroke road racers. So I bought a, a used TZ250. And man, what a what a cool, eclectic, snobby bunch of guys because they're, you know, at that time, they're real motorcycles, right? They're, they're real race bikes, I should say. At that time, there were no, you know, the real, you know, you had your super bikes, your GSX-Rs and stuff, but the 250s and the 500 Grand Prix bikes, that was your purpose-built road racers. And, and man, how cool were they? So I did that Southeast region for a while, and then I got out of it and you know, sold my bike and went into other avenues of doing stuff and then met my wife and stuff. But I tell you, I was a, <laughs> I was a professional road racer at one point. And what I say by that is I was, I was, I was became an expert and I was a paid road racer. And it's the funniest story. Everybody hears this and they're like, Oh, get out. So at the time, there was a company called Moto Liberty out of Texas. And I think they're still around, but at that time they were, importing 125 race bikes and this was 92 or 93 i can't remember and we went up to atlanta to do a one of the formula usa events a bunch of buddies of mine we drove up from south florida went and did road atlanta and we did a with a formula usa event on with your own badass motorcycle 250 road racers against uh, 900 uh muzzy at the time built a 900 raptor which was basically a zx7 with a 900 cc motor in it um, that was out of hand. So that's how good these 250s were. But anyway, mm. there was a RS125 professional race where you could either ride your own race or you can, um, you know, you can rent one and Motor Liberty rented, rented them. So I rented a Motor Liberty bike. And what kind of the coolest things was is Nikki Hayden. This was this time that Nikki Hayden and Tommy Hayden were, I don't know, really young teenagers. And this might have been around the time, however old was in in 92 where they may have lied about their age or something like that okay so uh to go road racing so they had their road racers there and so we did the i did the race and the coolest thing <laughs> i always look back and i want a picture of him of nikki hayden coming across the finish line because eight lap race the last lap i came underneath the nissan bridge at road atlanta and of course i thought i was going fast but i knew i wasn't i was never really a Oh, fast guy. That's why I joke around about me being a professional road racer, right? So I came under the came under the Nissan bridge, and there's a really short straightaway that goes straight down, and then a really sharp right hander. Well, as we're going down the hill, on the inside of me comes Nikki Hayden, and I turn into the corner right behind him, and there's the checkered flag. I'm like, son of a gun. He laps me on the last lap on the last corner, and I get through the checkered flag. I turn around, there's Tommy right behind him. I'm like, man, you couldn't wait just one corner so I can finish the race. And, <laughs> but the, you know, and that's why I asked for a picture because then it would have shown Mickey Hayden, me, and Tommy Hayden crossing the finish line one, two, three, and I could. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I got a check in the mail, and I should never have cashed this check, but it was fifty dollars, and I just thought it was, you know cool. Hey, I'm a professional road racer. I get paid to go road race. Uh, so you didn't make a copy done. of the check? No, and I, I was young. Oh, and man. And... <laughs> That's, fun. That's you know, awesome. It's, 
I think it's one of the very few regrets that I have in my life because a lot of my life have been a I've been a fuck up, believe it or not, a lot of times. And um and I really don't regret it because it kind of molded me into who I am now. Sure. Um, and I think I'm an I'm an okay guy, but there's just a few times in my life I go, damn it, I should really not have done that, and I shouldn't have I shouldn't have won, I shouldn't have um cash that check, I should have kept it because that's pretty cool just to talk about things, not that yeah. you know. And then the second thing was, is I should have went up to Antonio Banderas. No, Armin Asante. I'm sorry. Armin Asante was at my bachelor party. Why? Because I'm Bob Beekman. <laughs> who, who wouldn't want to go? <laughs> no. Do you know who Armin Asante is? No. Okay. He's, a, he's an actor. And at the time, he was people, people who knew him, right? So if you ever saw Strip Tease with Demi Moore. Um, um, I think so. I may have. Okay. Burt Reynolds was in it. And Armin Asante was in it. And Armin Asante was a detective in that movie. And the big deal about it was it was, it was filmed in 95, and it was filmed right there in Pompano Beach, Florida, because it, there was a closed-down strip club. So it was filmed in Pompano Beach, right near, right near Fort Lauderdale, um, and that's where the whole setting of everything was. So it just so happened that they were filming at the same time I was getting married, and he was hanging out at this thing and because i'm half in the bag because um it's my bachelor party everybody's going oh there's Armin asante and i can picture him sitting up there sitting uh, smoking a cigar him and he had some bodyguard and a couple of dancers around and um you know now today bob beekman today would have went up to him and said hey Armin, thanks for coming to my thanks for coming to my bar <laughs> no uh, bachelor party <laughs> you know what's the worst he could have said you know get out of here and that's yeah. another good story right yeah no he probably would have had he He'd have played right along with it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, I would hope so. But yeah, so that was uh, that was my only other time that I thought, you know what, I should have really said something or I should have done something. And then my wife was ecstatic to find out that Armin Asante was at my bachelor party. She knew who he was. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I'll have to look him up because I don't, uh, I'm not much of a movie watcher. I just okay. tend to fall asleep. I, I don't watch a lot of movies. <laughs> Yeah, this was the big deal about it was is that um, that's when uh, Demi Moore got her boots. You know, she was never, if you ever remember her earlier stuff, she was never big chested, and she got she got boobs, and everybody went haywire over it. And then I think she showed them off in that movie. I can't remember, but in any event, oh, that's funny. So this was down in Florida, right? You yeah. were uh, now you live in Knoxville, right? I do. How long have you been up there? <laughs> I've been here just over twenty years now, twenty one years or so. Yeah. So that's a while. Yeah, so I moved up here. Yeah, so I moved up here to go to Tucker. I worked in those that little motorcycle shop and it's not as cool a story, but I worked in that little motorcycle shop, mom and pop shop. We ended up getting bigger. We ended up being a Honda franchise. And that's where I just worked my way through it because it was a smaller shop, learned a lot of service, a lot of a lot of everything. You had to do everything because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big giant ten I mean a fifty people operation. It was, you know, five, seven, ten people. Uh, at times, but I worked my way through it and always met the reps and their bosses and anybody they brought around. I tried to know everybody, but then I got a, uh, the job, a call. I've been trying to get into Tucker and I moved, I moved my location of where I was living at my house five times in two years, trying to get into a, another position to always, always kind of better myself, right? Sure. To get into a, a, you know, kind of move up the ladder and I don't mind working up that way. And that's where I always wanted to. 
So, uh, so we've met these guys and about two years, I was trying to get into either a different motorcycle shop and I'm going to go and move somewhere. And the guy says, well, I've sold my shop to my, to somebody else and you can't go and I'm stuck and I'm moving in with my mother-in-law and I ended up getting a phone call from, uh, you may know him, Greg Schmidt. I don't think he I do. He worked for Tim Dodd for a while. No, I don't, uh, maybe okay. by face, but I um, don't remember okay. the name. Well, he worked at, you know, he worked at stuff for a long time, but he was the regional manager for Tucker at the time and he's based in Atlanta and he calls me up and he goes, Hey, he goes, I got a, I got a job for you finally. And if you want, and it's in Knoxville, it's in Tennessee, or he said he was in Tennessee. And I said, Oh, Tennessee. And all I could <laughs> think about, hey, me being this naive, still kind of, you know, young or whatever. And I'm always in the hustle and bustle. I always lived five miles from the ocean, lived in New York, New York, visited the city a lot, then went down to South Florida and it's fast, fast paced. And, and then he goes, Tennessee. And I'm like, Oh, let me call my wife. <laughs> and so <laughs> I called her up. I says, Hey, we got the opportunity to go there, but uh, it's in Tennessee. She goes, oh, no, it's beautiful there. And she she uh, went to college in Rome, Georgia. So she was familiar with the area, familiar with Tennessee. And so I said, well, I can live anywhere. Uh, so we basically packed up. Um, me and the, uh, we had, uh, the daughter was one. She was under one when we moved up there. Colin was three. And we just, we picked up and, and went to Tennessee. And I'll tell you, it's the best thing I ever did. Knoxville was fantastic. Cool. Um, Good deal. Yeah. So you've been there 20 years. You moved there for Tucker. Let's talk about your job. To work with Tucker, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, explain that job to somebody that doesn't know what a rep does in this industry. Explain what is it exactly you do. Like, uh, explain a day I, in the life of. I'll tell you what we don't do first because. <laughs> that might be what wise. We don't do, <laughs> what we don't do is what I thought we did, right? So prior to me getting my job at Tucker, I always did a whole bunch of seminars and books on tape and stuff like that to learn how to sell and, and just more education I could on business. But then when I got the job at Tucker, I thought I really just all need to do is walk in, make friends with everybody and say, see you later. And I get the order and I get credit for everything. <laughs> Um, well, that's all they do, right? So then I, yeah, that's right. That's all we do. But that was my, my somewhat of shock. And it's also not the, and this is where I recently put a post up on, on LinkedIn too. It's not, if you read three sales books on selling and didn't get it or did, or needed more to learn how to sell, you're in the wrong profession because it's not about a bunch of sales pitches like the old Brian Tracy days of, you know, your closure, your, which kind of closing you use, all these open-ended questions and, and closed questions and all these selling techniques of, you know, get them to say yes five times and then go, give me your order. It's not right. all about that junk. But the pressure is real as a, as a rep. So it's not just, you know, walk in. I don't start my job at 9.15 in the morning. I'm up at 6 a.m. checking emails. Mondays, I don't do a lot on the road. For one, I don't have a lot of shops open on a Monday, but it's a good day to prepare because even if they were open on a Monday, they're still kind of crazy getting over from the weekend. But it is a time to prepare and get ready and have all your ducks in a row to make sure that when you do go out, you either have an opportunity to present stuff to people, you know, 
wild ass seat cushion. So I'll, I'll get all my information together at that point. I've got, I know who I'm going to see that week, I prepare who I'm going to see that week. And I prepare, everybody's different. You know, not everybody's going to be a candidate for wild ass seat cushions. Or they are, but they don't know it and they don't want it. So we have to go in a different direction maybe. But at that point, I have to figure out, you know, have they purchased them before? Do they know them? If they have purchased them, I need to, you know, figure out what their sales history was and possibly do some projecting of, of the future, of what it's going to be in the future to make sure that their inventory levels are correct. Also making sure that people's margins are correct as well. Do they earn discounts? Do they not earn discounts? Can't just walk in and drop my pants like some people do. That's not, you know, because then if that's the way you are, the person who's buying from you is just going to gonna buy from the next guy walks in and, and drops their pants. Sure. Um, so, you know, it's, it is selling in senses, but it's not in the, it, it's not a one-time sale. It's a lifetime sale for me as far as getting through. And, you know, I don't need to sell you 10 seats today if your sales history only says that you sell one a month or two a month. You need your normal inventory right there. There will be an occasion where we have to maybe up that inventory level just to buy correct that maybe you come to one of the Tucker shows and do a uh, and buy in and buy a dozen seats. So Craig's good enough to get you guys to get them a discount. And then it makes sense to buy two and three, four months ahead of time. So that's a lot of the job, I believe, is to keep people profitable and keep Tucker profitable at the same time. Because, you know, and, and vendors like you, because if we're all, if nobody's profitable and nobody does anything, right? nobody does anything worthwhile. But yeah, so we'll go, I'll go start at, like I said, 6 a.m., catch up on things, and it'll be fine-tuning of the week, right? Because I do my plan the week, you know, the Monday before for the most part, and then I might fine-tune stuff along the way. And I'll try to have as many little presentations ready to go for each, tailored to each shop, because each shop is not the same, even if you're selling the same product to them. The way, the way we present it to them may be different depending on who's receiving. And that goes back to, remember the, the sales books I said, if you read three sales books, you're good, right? You learn some techniques, you understand that when they're buying signals, when you got to shut up and when you just got to, you know, ask for the sales, say, get somebody to say no to you three times. Mm-hmm. But knowing people is, I think, that disc assessment, I don't know if you ever take that training. Anything like it? I would have to see it to see if I've done anything like it because I'm not familiar with it by that title. The DISC assessment, and you probably have, and it basically categorizes you into four segments, into four, uh, you know, not a pizza pie, but a pizza just cut into four slices. And, you know, it's um, like if a guy is an, an, an accountant, you wouldn't walk into an accountant and show him all the crazy colors and tell him how cool it is and everything else. Oh, sure. He doesn't care about that. Right. He wants to know the numbers, right? He wants to know the profit margin, you know, cost, retail, profit margin, and that kind of stuff. Quantity breaks, things of that numbers, numbers. And the creative guy wants to know, you know, about all the color scheme. He doesn't care what it costs. He doesn't care anything. He just sees that cool Mickey Hayden replica awry helmet and he's got to buy it. And he's going to sell it on that passion. And then you've got the guy who just, you know, kind of cautious. Oh, man, I got to, 
you know, I don't know about that. And, um, you know, it's a lot of money for that helmet. I know it's good. It's, you know, so you got to pick and choose how you sell. And that disc assessment kind of helps you understand who your customer is and then how, and then it kind of, once you know who it is, then you can tailor how you've got to present things to him and the way it's going to make sense to him. Doesn't matter what it thinks to you. It matters what it, what what he thinks. And that's another, which runs into another book called um, Why We Buy or Why They Buy. I never remember that. Paco Underhill. I can remember who the who the owner of the book is or the writer, the author. <laughs> but that's another cool book because it tells you about your. It, it teaches you to to understand your customer more than anything, right? So you don't want to. You know, if he doesn't sell a lot of stuff, certain amount of product in a certain time frame, you don't want to, you know, here's, here's a good example. And this is something that one of the guys never, one of the, a lot of the vendors don't understand, I guess, or maybe not even vendors, but motocross apparel is very time sensitive in the fact of it's always introduced at the end of May, June. It was kind of pushed into July, but that corresponds with all the new dirt bikes that come into showroom floor in August. So you present it in June or July, you um, get it in, you order it up, it walks in the dealership's door late July, early August, and the selling season is over by December 24th. So then you come into the spring season and you're not presenting motocross apparel anymore other than, hey, buy this, it's starting to be a closeout. Right. And that's where maybe you can fill a void at a higher profit margin, or you now have a closeout corner for your for your customers who love deals. Everybody loves a deal. So, but to make sure that you're presenting things at the at the right time because of those type of cycles as well. So when you learn those type of things, that's the coolest part. Is to one of the cool parts other than the people. That was one of the first things um, that amazed me when I. One of the things that amazed me when I first got into the industry was how far ahead you're preparing for each of these cycles. You know, like you're talking about motocross apparel. I remember that specifically from when I worked as a distributor rep. And what's crazy now is as the manufacturer, how we have Uh to plan farther than that. And now we get to add delayed shipping times to that time. So we're literally planning for 2023 sales now because we have to get it ordered so we can have it by the end of this year (laughs) yes you know your your lead times were what six months for a new product it seems to be now yeah six months for a current product yeah so you really especially with the way COVID has driven stuff lead times are way way crazy and a lot of people don't understand that stuff and it's and it's apparel life cycles are the worst i think because they're um I think they're about 18 months in advance. So where are we right now? Um, we're April. So they are in probably we're finalizing what's going to be, or we're, we're kind of designing, I would guess. I would guess Tucker and Answer is designing what's going to be available in July or August of 23. So just like you. Yeah. Yeah. You're that far out. And then there's so many other crazy things that happen in manufacturing. I don't know if it's happened to you, but we had a boot manufacturer decide that they were going to not do boots and forget to tell us. Oh, that's nice. So, yeah, we put in an order. A couple months later, the guy calls in on the order just to kind of follow up. And the guy goes, uh, well, we don't make boots no more. He goes, what? <laughs> you got a purchase order for X amount of boots. Interesting. So, yeah, so, the rest so of the- 
Yeah, so Monday, obviously planning for the week, what's uh, what's a normal day? Get up, 6.15, get ready for your day. That's it, yeah. Yeah, clear my head. I don't, you know, I don't do any meditation or anything else like that, but I... <laughs> But I do have quiet time, man. I think that's so important. So I'm up at 6 a.m., coffee brewing, quiet time, catch up on current events, last minute emails, family time a little bit, a brief family time with anybody who's around, uh, and then out the door anywhere from, you know, 7, 7.30 to, you know, 9 o'clock if I got my first shop, you know, really local. And, I, you know, I never walk into a shop at 9 a.m. right when they open up. I always give them a couple of minutes to kind of get in the door, get open, get their bearings about them as well. Or if I do walk in at 9, and, and that's where it's up to each shop, right? Do I do walk around and do inventory for them? Or do I want to – and you have to tailor it to the what the shop wants. I have a few shops who say, Bob, you don't need to check my inventory. That's why I got a thousand dollar, couple thousand dollar computer system that I pay for every month, inventory control system. And all I want to know is what's new, what my specials are, what new product. Tell me about that. And um, I'm, I was hired to do this job and make decisions. But some guys will want you to count grips or whatever. And if that's what you want me to do, I count grips. I count spark plugs, whatever you want. So I tailor it to them. Some shops are, you know, a, 20 minutes, a half an hour, some are, you know, two, three, four hours. And it's, and now here's what the, the thing is, is we're not sitting around BSing, which, you know, everybody does a fair amount of that. But for the most, for the most part, we're trying to figure out ways to become more profitable, to uh, streamline whatever processes may be, organizing a showroom um, where we're rearranging walls, we're merchandising things we're discussing it because you know there's no one there are definitely certain rules to merchandise but there's never nothing set in stone there's just rules but there's nothing set in stone so we are discussing things and we're making it better by saying i say maybe hang this this way and the guy's like i like it this way and we discuss why and we come to a good way of how to hang that up to make it more presentable to the end user to walk in. Sometimes we're talking to the sales department, we're talking to the service department. Smart guys are talking to everybody as best they can, talking to all departments. And sometimes that's, you know, is it the dynamic of the shop or how that works? So, uh, so yeah, so we'll do all those different things. So basically, you, you become in a, a uh, shop. free labor for the shop to help make them as profitable <laughs> as possible. So it's not like, uh, not like people think, you know, I get, we, you know, I know so many reps and if you work in a shop or if you've ever even been to a dealership and a rep comes in, it looks like you guys just come in, you hang out for a little bit, like you thought, and you leave. Absolutely yes. not the case. Yeah. How big is your territory? Too big. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's big geographically, right? So I'm, I am, uh, right now I'm in Clarksville, Tennessee, you know, 200 miles from my home. So I have to spend an overnight where I'll, I'll do part of Nashville. So I've got this triangle. I go basically approximately 125 miles south and east, and then I go about 200 at my furthest point west, and everything in between. The nice part about what I have is the way Tennessee is designed is I'm right up and down the highways, so I don't do a lot of back roading. But yeah, so it's about that, and I I average in the 50 dealer range, which is borderline probably well right now i'm under 50 
but right anywhere over that 50 is too much. And sometimes even 50 is too much because you don't get to spend the quality time at certain shops that may be able to grow if you were in there more often. But I try to touch everybody as often as I can with phone calls and being available for everybody. And it's one of the things I kind of, the two things I pride myself on is, are, well, there's a lot of, but one of them is resourcefulness that I may not know everything, but I know where to find it, or I'll know somebody who can find it, or I'll, and I can get you that answer. But, and I forgot where I was going with the other part, but. <laughs> two things you pride yourself in. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> resourcefulness and how oh, often you're at the shops, probably. Yeah. Oh, well, well good. Yeah, you got me. No, when you, if I'm not being able to be in that shop, right, you can call me. And if I'm not standing in front of a customer, because you're my main concern right now, I give you my full attention unless I'm either playing phone tag or my family multiple calls me multiple times. And I know something's up because they understand that, you know, when I'm sitting in front of somebody, I can't pick up the phone. So I will call you back in a really short period of time. I'm not the guy who gets back to you two and three days later. And if I say, hey, I, I got to call somebody else, and I'll get back to you. I'm the guy who calls you back in a couple hours and says, I don't have an answer, but I'll, as soon as I do, I just didn't want you to think I blew you off. Sure. Um, but yeah, so that's the other part of it is, you know, so 50 dealers is probably, you know, 40 to 50 is probably the sweet is a good spot. Sure. So one of um, the, one of the things in all the reps that I get to see and all the reps we get to travel with, I love seeing the variety of vehicles that you guys drive. So what do you drive? <laughs> I drive a, and, and this, I don't know, it suits me. I drive a Toyota Tacoma. So you're driving a pickup? Um, yes. Yeah. You'd think that and every I've, rep would drive a pickup or a truck of some sort. Very few of you do. Um, probably. You know, it, it, I think it's geographically. And then, you know, I don't know what everybody else drives. I know there's a lot of hoopty mobiles out there. A lot of what? <laughs> but a hoopty, you know, like this. $1,500 car that just, you know, and you run it into the ground. Yep. That's not me. You know, I, I, my, my Tacoma is a 2014 Tacoma. It's in excellent condition. I bought it used. It's got 190,000 on it, I think. And you know what I do to it? I put gas in it and change the oil. Yeah. That's nice. And air filters and tires. And that's it. I, my previous one, right, and I had a little Honda Civic, and it was just too small to do a rep job because you do have to put samples in it. Sometimes you got a half dozen helmets. Sometimes you're showing jackets and stuff, and that's just uh, way too much. So that's why the truck worked out real well for me. It's a four-door. So I went ahead, and in 03, I bought a brand-new Tacoma, an 03 Tacoma, and I drove it for about 12 years, 13 years. I can't remember. Maybe more than that. Ooh, maybe till 14 or so, 15, something around there. I don't know. And I had 410,000 miles on it. Just a few. And it, yeah, but it was still in great. Well, like you, you've got a couple of those kind of vehicles. Mm-hmm. But you take care of your stuff and it'll take care of you. So then I bought a Subaru and boy, was that a mistake. Gosh, I got, I got harassed for it. <laughs> uh, you ever meet Howard Kelly? The name sounds he really with, familiar. He was with Black Brand, and he worked for a whole bunch of motorcycle magazines years ago. But he harassed me at one point. <laughs> it was a political thing, too, because he comes from California. 
Okay. And he, uh, he doesn't fit the California mold, but he was harassing me about being some sort of Californian because I was riding around in a Subaru. But that was my worst rep vehicle. It was comfortable and all, but it, boy, what a bunch of problems. Ugh, so got rid of it and got this Tacoma. <laughs> and now you're but in yeah. a truck. Yeah, I see a lot of vans, smaller wagons, hatchbacks, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. cars. I always thought that the, my favorite was uh, when I was with Scott, this girl drove a uh, one of those little cubes. Ah, yeah. And that fit, I, I mean, boxes it. fit in that thing perfectly, but not much of a guy's vehicle, but she drove it. Yeah. And I always thought, man, that thing's, that's a cool little car for a rep. I and now with all the vans, at one point. like the, the transit and then the, whatever the smaller transit is, or, you know, yep. all those small vans, you see a few of those too. Yeah. And that's something I would like to have, but I like the car sportier side of it. And I just don't. I don't need it. I don't haul around a dirt bike and my mountain bike fits on a little rack on the back of my bike on the back of my car. And it's a little bit more comfortable. Cool. I just don't have a need for a van. Not long ago, I guess it is a long time ago, but I had asked a favor of you and that was to take Callie and introduce her to dealer visits. Before that, I think her and I had run around Minnesota and it's a little different because we're really not on the dealership payroll. We're not there to take inventory. We're just in there to be wild ass guy the manufacturer rep so we just come in introduce ourselves show product a little bit don't really have to try to sell it we normally do but we don't really have to so i'd taken her out and we did some dealer visits and i remember calling you saying hey bob she's ready to get out on the road i'd like to have you take her and you did so i appreciate that but you sent her back and i have a little bit of a concern because every time we're on the road, there's something to do with bathroom signs that you guys are sending pictures of. Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> what can you say about that? Um, you know, I don't know where we got on that, but she is, and I say this in the best way, because she's an odd bird, right? She's not a typical, <laughs> when you, when you like, I don't even know how, well, I do know about, about her age, right? Her typical person that's her age. Is not like her. She is such a cool, eclectic person. Eclectic is not the right word, but she's such a cool person. She's wise behind her, beyond her years, but she's also, I wouldn't say sheltered, right? But she's not as experienced going all over God's creation, right? Um, and stuff. But I don't know how we got on that subject of uh, bathroom signs. But yeah, you just see these weird bathroom signs, and sure enough, when I see something, <laughs> You know, there's always these things that just trigger people in your head that you see something. And I do this all the time where I will see something and I'll be like, I got to send that to whoever. And I may not have spoken to them for six months. And I'm mm-hmm. like, dude, you got to see this. You yeah. got, I share, I share a bunch of junk. But yeah, the bathroom signs are, if there's something that's funny, uh, I got to share it with her. It's like the, the, the poop sign that I saw would poop again as if it was uh, a, <laughs> some guy's, some motorcycle shop bathroom says uh, he had one of those five stars and would poop again like it was a review <laughs> above the thing. And then if I saw it, oh, and then there was, oh, because we've had so much, I would, well, I guess controversy with, with um, gender, transgender people recently. So I'm in a restaurant in New York and they had a sign that said men, women, and it had a picture of a um, an alien as well. And it said, we just don't care, just clean up after yourself <laughs> and it was just hysterical right because you can make fun of things or just 
if it's a funny sign, and, and I think she's seen them before. So we, you know, and that's the good part about walking around with reps. When I get an opportunity to, to walk around with, you know, somebody like when Cali came, I learned so much more about, about the, the wild ass seat cushions to begin with. But then we get to know each other, right? And now we've got other people we can talk to and network with. And just, you know, we're all people, just a bunch of goofballs having fun in a, in a great industry. Um, yeah, that's being truth. as professional as we can at yep. the same time, right? Yep, absolutely. That's the truth. It's, and that's what it's about is going out and you're hanging out with your friends. Like, and, and to quote Rick Dorfmeyer, we don't actually work. We just go hang out and talk with our friends about motorcycles all day. You know, yeah. he, I remember that from early very early in my career, I should say, just early in my career, I remember him saying that, and that's always stuck with me, and I still, I still carry that attitude with me. So we're pretty damn lucky, really. Oh God, yeah. You know, there's still the professional, and the you know everybody's got to be profitable, and we have a you know we have a job. It just happens to be in one of the most kick-ass profession industries in the in the nation. There's not many more that are better than us. Well, I don't think there's anybody better than us because. Who the hell gets to ride around with two wheels? Right. Um, yeah. Nothing better. Just, yeah. It's just different. But there's some there's some pretty cool industries out there. My um, my buddy was a marketing manager for Mastercraft Boats, and that was just a pretty good gig. But yeah, there's some other cool ones, but not not like motorcycles. There's there's nothing like riding a darn motorcycle. Man, just that feeling you get. Man, yeah, it's great. I, I agree. Earlier, you mentioned. Uh, Training, sales training, etc. Do you still do that? As often as I can, I just do it differently, right? So I've been through so many, I've been through so many training sessions, like that disc assessment. Um, I've had training on um, public speaking. I've had training on different sales things. With you know, I don't know if anybody has ever mentioned the Dirk Beveridge guy, which is he's got his place too, and he and he teaches you more again about people you know uh, identifying the people in the in the shops and knowing how to sell to each different person but yeah I, training and now I do more of my training through I want to know more about people in the grand scheme of things and how and why they do stuff and I pick it up from all over the place you know and it, it to learn more about people is more of what the training is so I read as many books as I I read less books I guess I could say but I do listen to more podcasts and it's not just all Joe Rogan stuff, but it's other stuff that'll, you know, learn more about people in general, how they talk, how they, how they think. No, oh, that's cool. But, and it podcasts and then, are great now, especially, you know, you, you're in the car, you're in the truck most of the time. Oh, so it's great. You can listen to gosh. them. And, uh, it's, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself. So you don't do a lot of books. What are your favorites? Uh, and you know, I am the worst with them because I, it's almost like a set and forget. Malcolm Gladwell has a couple of good ones, but one of his best ones is the one I just had in my mind that I lost. Talking to Strangers. That was an outstanding, outstanding book. Why We Buy is another one, Paco Underhill. And it helps you understand, you know, when a person walks into a store, you know, there's a good reason when you walk into a Nordstrom's or places like that, how they have their stores laid out. And um, it's because they paid people like Paco Underhill to sit in there and have somebody watch you. Do you walk in the store and go right? How many people walk in the store and go right? Mm -hmm. How many people, you know, touch a tie that's blue or pink, you know, whatever. 
So that is another great book. There's one really good one that is not in print anymore, but if you can find it, and I probably can get you a copy of it because I think you would, you would dig it, but it's called Defy Mediocrity. Hmm. And believe it or not, it's written by Derek Welch, who is, who was one of the owners of Sullivan's. And he was a part owner in, in Sullivan's. The, um, basically they, their Northeastern uh, distributors of apparel. Okay. At one time they were the, I still think they're the exclusive distributor of Joe Rocket. But that owner defied mediocrity. It was an outstanding book. And I don't know why he couldn't sell more of those darn books. Mm-hmm. I know I sold a dozen of them for him. Yeah, no, it, I, uh, I gave away a dozen. The name of it makes me want to read it. Yeah, because, you know, and it's basically, it's such a simple concept, right? And there's a couple of little concepts. You went into your job and you went to your boss and you said, I mean, your boss said, I'll give you a job. It pays $10 an hour and you got to sit at the parts counter and, and take people's order. That's the grand scheme of things, right? But when you walk to your desk where you're going to go sit behind that parts counter and there's a piece of paper on the floor, you can't walk by that piece of paper and go, ah, it's not my job. I'm getting paid to do something else. I can't go back and do that. That's somebody else's gig. That's what we pay whoever. And that's right. bullshit in my eyes, right? You pick up the damn piece of paper. If you got to wipe down a counter, if you got to do whatever, you know, you do what you got to do. The money will come after the fact. Yep. And um, I've found that but, to be true, as, you, right? as have you, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, it'll, it'll follow you. And there'll be ups and downs of, you know, maybe jobs you don't like or you don't get paid well for. But in the grand scheme, you, you said you'd take that job. Now, define mediocrity, do better, and you'll go up the ladder, right? You know, that's, you know, when people ask me, oh, how do I get a job as a rep? How do I get, well, there's a lot of, there's a little bit of luck in there, but there's more of, I, I hope to think that I always added, that added value thing, right? And I defied mediocrity because mediocrity guy's going to walk past that and say, it's not my job. I'm going to pick that up and I'm going to straighten out the helmets and oh, I don't get paid to wipe down motorcycles. You get paid to sell them. But if you, what's easier to sell on a clean motorcycle or a dirty motorcycle? Oh, and you know, what's um, funny. So now that you talk about that, I, and this just dawned on me as guys come in and ask you, you know, how do I get into being a rep? Yeah. Those guys doing the extra are the ones that you're going to notice. And if they're the ones asking you for the job and they're not doing that stuff, they're just shooting themselves in the foot. You're absolutely right. It's so funny. And they don't even pay attention to that. I get that all the time. Oh, how do I get a cool shirt like that? Or how do I get a job like that? Or I'm like, man, I said, it's pretty easy. You go out and you do everything you can to better yourself and educate yourself, right? I paid for my own way to go to Indianapolis one year to the dealer show because my owner at that time was not sending me. So I got up and went and paid my own way to go to Indianapolis from South Florida. I paid my own way to go and do other training, whether it be a sales seminar or just a regular self-improvement seminar. But I think that's how you, you know, kind of move up. And and I said, you know, you want a job like this or something like this? I said, well, you got to try and do that. And when I bring in somebody who's got a product, you don't say, can I have one for free? You know, you don't go to the trade shows and ask for posters and, and autographs and <laughs> where's your free stuff? No, you don't. The free stuff, the free stuff you want is the education, right? Tell me about your stuff. Tell me how to sell more of it because at the end of the day, you'll, you'll sell more. You'll make more money, especially if you're a commissioned employee. And I tell that to people all the time. You, when you're buying stuff for the shop, you got to buy it right from the right people so you can get a raise from 
your boss, when you show them how much more profitable you're doing. Oh, my boss doesn't matter about, care about that. Well, my boss doesn't care and he won't notice me. I'm going, well, yeah, you're right. He's, you know, because you're not going to show them. You're not going to take the time to do the right thing and then show them the profitability that you made extra in it and, and you deserve something. I said, dude, he'll, he'll do it. But then I tell him, I said, you know, you, you know, like somebody like Callie, I come in with Callie and we talk about this and you get your education from it. I said, make sure you get their card. And at the end, and when they're gone, you email them or call them or text them. However, that guy person says, hey, you can contact me anytime. Contact them in that way and say, hey, thanks for coming and talking to us and spending your time here. I said, now you've got a contact and now you're, you're in the door. Yep, that's um, all you need sometimes. Yeah. So asking about your books, one of the best books, and if, if uh, anybody listens to this, does any of this sales training stuff, have you read the book Go For No? No. So it's called Go For No. Yes is the destination. No is how you get there. I haven't, I guess I haven't read it probably for about five years now. It's probably been more because I read it when I was selling cars. And uh, and anyway, it's bas- it's a real short book. It's a super easy read. But basically, it's you just you keep asking for the sale until, or you know, once they say yes, you keep asking for more and more and more until they say no. And I think it was the guy he was going like selling a suit, right? And he sold a suit, and he was super excited about himself. And his boss said, "Well, what did he say no to?" And he said, "What do you mean?" And he goes through how you know, yeah, he was selling the suit, but did you sell him the matching tie? Did you sell him the matching socks? Did you sell him, you know, just keep going until they say no? At least you try to get everything out of them as a sales guy. Not something in your position you would do, but your parts guys would be doing. They should be doing. You know, if a guy comes in and buys a new chain, don't you think you need some chain lube? Maybe a chain cleaning tool? You know, you go with all these things until you figure out what they have. But uh, that book Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend. It's super easy read. Um, I have a copy of it here. I'll have to check that because I like super easy reads. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. And You know, I have to find a bunch of them. I read so many of them. Or I have read so many different ones over the years. That go for go for no is a good one. I'll have to check out. Yeah, it's a good one. And I kind of chuckled when I was, you know, we just got back from Arizona Bike Week. The listeners know now that this is recorded. We just got back from Arizona Bike Week, and I recalled the book when I was talking to a customer. He bought a cushion. Actually, he bought his wife a cushion, and he was on one of our competitors' cushion, which I may or may or may not have traded in. So now they both had cushions, <laughs> and then. You know, we do sell a cover because we should keep your seat dry. So he got that too. And then um, where he said no finally was the T-shirts. He didn't didn't want any of the T-shirts or the hoodies. Ah. But uh, it was what started at one sale became three three parts, you know, which. Yeah. It was, and I just kind of chuckled because that's in the go for no book. And I just kind of was able to apply it this long later. So training super important. Yeah. We do it all. You know, we do it here frequently. Um, we just hired a guy in. Uh, he works in the shop. He's actually my nephew. Great kid. He wants to, you know, start his own personal training business. So I had him doing some of the personal training stuff that I've bought here to help him out. Because, of course, I need him to leave here as a better person. And if I can help that, then I want to. But a lot of that is just training. And we yeah. we do that a lot here. We'll constantly practice with, with each other, listen to podcasts when we're on the road. You know, we'll make mistakes in front of people. And literally turn around and go, well, I should have done a little better on that one. You know, like live training with people too that we take pretty important. So it's it's a big deal yeah, here. So it's I cool to hear that you yeah, do 100%. it because so many reps don't. They just run around listening to music all day. And it's crazy <laughs> to me. That's chewing gum for your ears. 
It is. So do you have a, <laughs> uh, a, a plan, a goal? You've been doing this for 20 some years. What's your five-year goal? You know, I'm not 100% sure, right? Cause things shuffle over time and I'm kind of at, there was lots of times that I was happy as a rep. I would love what I do, right? You get to walk around, go to a different shop. It's never, it's always a different day. I'm at a different place every day. I'm very happy with what I was doing. And even now, but I wanted, I would really honestly like to try to find a way to possibly have the opportunity to, I think I got a lot to offer. And it's funny because I was thinking the other day and I, I was talking to a buddy of mine and, and then I saw something else about it. And, you know, what's the meaning of life, right? Or what do you, what do you hear on this, on this thing for? I hear just to exist. And I hate that because I don't just exist. I go and experience a bunch of junk, but I want to, you know, I'm always looking for something bigger or better for myself. So I'd probably like to be in some sort of a management role. It's kind of like what Rick Dorfmeyer did, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're a rep for all those years. And now, and then he became an RSM at one point and did a couple other things, but probably something along that lines where I can hopefully influence some people without sounding too cocky, right? Because I still make mistakes. I still try to better myself. I am, I still walk out of shops, like you said, you know, I could have done that better. And I'm like, damn it, why didn't I have a suggested order? I don't know, whatever it is, right? Or, or why didn't I, I think about it down the road? I'm like, I should have said this to the guy. So, but in any event, um, I'd probably like to, you know, be in more of a management position to um, be able to help more people with being more resourceful, being more, uh, just being a better person in general. And especially at your job, because you got to take pride in it. And I think that's the, that's some of the things also that's just part of it. So even if I stay a rep, if I can coach that guy up in the shop, regardless of his age, who says, ah, my owner doesn't care. If I could coach that guy up and, you know, and then five years from now he goes, man, my owner didn't care, but I found an owner who did care. Mm-hmm. And now I make a lot more money and sure. I'm a lot happier. And the grant that I, you know, that's kind of thing. That's my, that's probably my immediate five year plan other than get my daughter out of college. Cool. No, I think that's cool. I have touched on all of the questions I had. Did you have anything you wanted to share? You know, at the end of the podcast, I always ask five questions, which are beginning to change because people that listen are having prepared answers, and I don't like that. So, <laughs> oh, well, I don't remember your questions. Well, that's and good. I don't really care because I went into this with a very open mind. I wanted to have fun and and kind of tell some stories and goof off and you know, learn some stuff at the same time because I think we've got to always better ourselves. But no, I don't really have any questions for you. Okay, then we will get right to the five questions. So this one, the first question is, what is something that you believe that other people think is insane? What I believe that other people think are insane. I'm just what I, what I, well, I guess riding motorcycles. Right. Or when I was road racing motorcycles or when I do basically my damn life. Right. I've always tried to do insane things. And I'll tell you another story. If you want to hear a story. Yeah. Hear a story. It's a cool one. I hope it is. <laughs> so I think all my, you know, my road racing, my going out and doing it by myself. I'm, I get that adventurous thing from my mother who just 
at one point picked up in her life and just left and left her family and everything and went. Her original family, not us. <laughs> she stayed with us. I'm like, wait a minute. Um, that You got that? <laughs> okay. Yeah, no. But, you know, my adventurous thing, I always, you know, like I said, I picked up my, my motorcycle, packed up my motorcycle and left for New York within six hours of finding I had no job. I just threw my junk on my bike and left. But, so, for one, the road racing, people think, you know, hey, you go X amount of miles an hour. And, yeah, you go 150 plus at places like Daytona, easy. And I've unfortunately done it on the sh- on the street. And funny, got it. Well, no, I'd lost my driver's license once for a 100 mile an hour plus speeding ticket, believe it or not. So, but in any event, um, so my wife and I, well, before my wife and I's story is pretty interesting, whereas we met in... December of 93, she tried to sell me some earrings and I wasn't buying because my everybody lived away from me. We met men. We didn't start dating until August of 94. We moved into each other in August, I mean, October of 94. In February, she said, we're going to get married and I'm not going to have a really long engagement. So there's a Friday the 13th and a couple of in this year in October. So we'll get married on Friday the 13th. And I said, yep, okay. And I was all in with it and all good with it. But what I did is how I officially proposed to her is her birthday was in June. So we planned a, what do you call that thing? We planned a skydiving trip okay. in Clewiston, Florida. So you jump out of a plane and you, and you got, you're looking out over, um, you can almost see the ocean. You can see the Atlantic Ocean, but you definitely see Lake Okeechobee where this is. But what we did is, so I sold my car and I was riding a bicycle to and from work every day. And I ended up, so we planned this trip for her birthday to go. And I never officially proposed at this point. She didn't have a ring yet either. We did pick out a ring, which I'd been paying for and paying for. And I finally picked it up the day before or a couple of days before her birthday, which we decided for her birthday, we're going to go skydive. Right, and you go do a tandem, a tandem thing. But what I ended up doing is I went to Sears, rode my bike to Sears, bought four king size bed sheets, and sewed them together. So I had a twenty by twenty foot banner that I made out of a thing, and I wrote Lorette, marry me, big exclamation point and a question mark as well. And so we went to, and she doesn't know that I have a ring yet either, but we know we're getting married. So we ended up going um, to. We end up going to whatever. We're the only people in the plane just because of the way the timing worked out. It was really good. And I arranged it before where they would put this banner out for me. And then we'd jump out of the plane. You know, I go and then she goes. And then she'd float. I'd come down first. And then she comes down second right over that banner. And I had this little tuxedo shirt on underneath my jumpsuit. And I got out, got on one knee. And she came down and I asked her to marry me at that point. So oh, that's a cool story. My life is pretty much is mellow at this point, but it has been insane in those instances of riding motorcycles and people who don't get it just don't get it. But I'll jump out of planes. I'll do almost anything once, cool. even twice. <laughs> so I don't think you answered the question. It would be a belief that you have, something you oh, believe, a belief. Damn it. that See? Um, other people would think is insane. Uh, I love the story, though. Um, don't get me wrong. That's, I am sorry. We're keeping uh, that. <laughs> A <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't think I have a belief that people think are insane. I think I, I live by a lot of beliefs that most everybody think are, are 
are good and common sense. Uh, yeah, you know, and I believe it's it's never never wrong to do the right thing. But I don't think I have a belief. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> <No>, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't because uh, I think I think like I said, a lot of the beliefs I have are are somewhat common sense to be you know good to everybody around. Oh gosh, I can't. No, I can't think of one. I hate to say. That's funny because I ask that question every show, and I'm not sure I would know the answer to that myself. But anyways, so the second question: this could be an investment of money, time, energy, or any other resource. What is the best or most worthwhile investment you have made when it comes to your world with two wheels? I, you know, I would probably have to say just the time, the time to experience everything and anything that I could, right? I'm not, I'm not a very good motocrosser in any way, shape or form, but I'm not scared to go out there and do it. Um, when I got my adventure bike going in the woods and doing stupid stuff, when I, I wouldn't say stupid stuff. Yeah. But I would say my time, time to go and experience anything I can. Yeah. That's cool. And you can say stupid because I believe there's a difference between stupid and dumb. Okay. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, we all get on oh, our bikes yeah, yeah, and do yeah. stupid stuff, but I don't think we do dumb yeah. stuff. And yeah, I think as a yeah. rider, no, you understand to... that difference. So, yeah. Yes, so I you've try got to stupid ride stuff. Within, my we- <laughs> within my means, but I am pushing myself, and every once in a while, I'm like, man, that was stupid. But no, I have not done done in a long time. Yeah, that's good. What is the best advice you have gotten as a motorcyclist? I don't think I've gotten much advice at all, honestly. The worst advice I could tell you is when I got that speeding ticket and the and the guy said, "Mr. Beekman, uh, I think you're going to lose. Well, you're going to lose your motorcycle, your license right now. So I think you should sell that motorcycle." <laughs> so that was the worst advice I ever got. Uh, I didn't take him up on it, the judge. But um, you know, I really haven't had many people give me a lot of advice. I wish I could say, but yeah. Well, I've advised a lot of people to just ride your own ride. And maybe that's it. Maybe Rick Yorkmeyer and saying, ride your own ride. This is not a race. That's probably the best thing. Yeah. All right. I'm going with that. <laughs> that's a good ride. one. I like that. Yeah. Ride your own ride. You don't need to be the fastest person through, you know, Deals Gap where I live, you know, US 129, the Dragon. You don't, I don't have to be the fastest guy through there. I just get through. And at the end of the ride, I got a big damn smile on my face. So I guess that's the best advice I've ever gotten. Ride your own ride. Cool. For my listeners, do you have any requests or asks of my audience? When you, in what, in what way am I requesting them? Requesting them to go do something? Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to see more of us doing? Is there anything we can do to help you? Whatever you feel like you can request, now's your chance. No. I, my only request is to go out, ride more motorcycles, be respectful to people, you know, don't give us motorcyclists a bad name, but go out and experience is more important than anything. Experience as much as you can. And if you can experience it with other people, it is definitely better. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, you go ride with your son, you know, go experience something and don't worry about what other people think is you know one guy told me i was stupid for not wanting to ride from here to seattle you know eight nine hours a day and then go ride to alaska from there or or something like that or no he was just going to seattle and back 
with a whole bunch of other people. But that was their trip. And I said, well, it's good for you. But he told me I was stupid for not wanting to do it. I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't want to. I want to go ride in interstate for, you know, eight hours a day and not experience things. So of course, as much as I like riding, stuff. I would turn that one down too. You're going to be on the freeway yeah. for eight days. Yeah, I went to. You know, I drove to Austin and did a ride through there to go to Austin the GP back in seventeen, and that was I was miserable getting out there. But once I got there and rode with a bunch of guys through the mountains and stuff, uh, the hill country, I guess they call it down there. Yeah. Hill. You know, the hill country's good, but it's not, it's just not enough of it. But yeah, riding in the interstate is no fun. So, but yeah, go experience stuff, man. Where can we follow you? Are you on Instagram? Do you, are you a social media, TikToker, YouTuber? Where can we follow you? I am on, I am on Facebook, but I don't, I'm a voyeur and I very little post, if anything. Um, I don't even go on there much. I don't like, I'm not a Facebook fan. I am an Instagram fan. And it's Beakman World, so my last name in World. And uh, I post a lot of stories more now than anything because I would, you know, talk to a little young kid. And I said, dude, you don't put much on your regular page. And he's like, yeah, it only goes on there if it's, like, really special. And then even the day, you know, my story, I'm not a big story guy because I don't want to live your life. Or I want to see your life because when I, talk, when I see you, I want to talk to you about your life. And if I see you, in your Instagram story, everything you do, I don't, I don't have to talk to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> True enough, yeah. So, but, but yeah. So, Instagram is where I am, and I do have some. I think my content is pretty cool. My daughter has taught me how to be a little bit more wittier with my with my comments and and stuff like that. But yeah, so Instagram is is the best place, and it's Geekman World is where I am. Well, I will put a link to that in the show notes. Do you have any last parting words? No, other than what I tell everybody before I leave and, and have fun, right? We are we need to be serious and we need to be professional. But in the end of the day, man, we are blessed. We live in the United States. There's so much other worse stuff going around this world, even in the country. So just really, at the end of the day, you got to have fun and look back on your stuff and go, wow, I've experienced some stuff and I'm very grateful for what I have. And that's how I am right now. I've experienced less than most, but I've experienced a lot more than many as well. So, um, but yeah, so have fun. For sure. Perfect. Well, I think that's all we got. This might be the longest episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> so I, if, if you're still listening, I appreciate it. Bob, I really appreciate you coming on. Folks, if you like what you're hearing, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Um, you can follow the adventures on Facebook or Instagram by looking for The Real Wild Ass. Of course, I am at Wild Ass Craig. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you again in a couple weeks. And of course, thank you again, Bob, for coming on. Very welcome. Thank you for having me on. I, I really dug it, and I hope that people stuck around for the full hour and 45 minutes or so. <laughs> I'm um, sure. Good. All right. Thank awesome. you, Bob. Thank you again.